Good morning. So welcome you uh, into Crossroads this morning. If you're here with us in person, if you're joining us online, we're glad that you're here. Uh, my name is Kurt, and, and I am honored that I get a chance to be up here with you all, to share with you all uh, this morning. Um, I don't know if Ben asked this or not. I, I, I was in here for part of the, the music time, but uh, he, was, he was curious who is excited for the football game this afternoon. Like three people, okay. The non-Chiefs fans are, that's good, that's good. Um, and then who's excited to watch like, you know, Cornhole on ESPN instead, you know, or see if there's still some curling going on in the Olympics or something like that. Yeah, that's about all I've watched in the Olympics so far is the curling. I know nothing about it, and for a sport I know nothing about, I have gotten very into it. You know, I'm like, oh, that's a great shot, and I have no idea what happened. You know, it's like probably most people watching, you know, baseball or football or something that don't know what's going on. It's, it's, it's fun to cheer when you don't know what's going on, but uh, it's, it's exciting. Well, we are, are in the middle of this series called Check It Out, where we have, uh, starting back at the beginning of the year, have been kind of working our way through the Bible. Now, we kind of preface this by saying this series is only like 15, 16 weeks so we can't cover the entire Bible in, uh, you know, just a few months. Uh, you can go to take uh, Bible college and postgraduate types degrees for years upon years upon years and never actually cover the entire thing and, and you know, really do it justice. It's just that big of a book. So what we've done is, is we've tried to break it down into themes. And so just to kind of recap, if you've missed any of them, I spent the first couple of weeks just explaining why, why it matters, why it's so important, why uh, we're getting into it, why we should put the Bible into our hearts. And then uh, Brad got into creation and how God's creation was perfect and, and, and that's what he intended for the world to be. But then I got into uh, sin last time I preached and talked about the fall and how Sin corrupted everything and got us uh, off the mark. And in the last couple of weeks, Brad's uh, preached again, talking about how God still chose us anyway. We're his chosen people. And last week, he talked about the law, and in particular, how the law uh, came to uh, protect our faith. But over the course of time, one of two extremes happened. Either people totally neglected it or they totally worshipped it. And they kind of forgot what it was actually there for. Uh, today, we are going to just kind of jump a little bit because the Old Testament, I, I, I said this early on, is very broad. Like, like it's a big umbrella. And if you don't really read between the lines and, and study between the lines, you don't realize that sometimes you've jumped decades between chapters. And so we're actually going to jump over to the prophets this week. We're going to, going to look at those because the book of Psalms is like a whole series in and of itself. And the Proverbs, um, you know, every verse is a different thought. And, and so we're going to jump there. I tried to get Brad to get up here and preach Song of Solomon this weekend, but he wasn't having any part of it. And so uh, we just decided to go ahead and talk about the Proverbs. Now, full disclosure, the Proverbs, you take this entire Bible that I just said, you know, would take years to preach through, the Proverbs cover over a quarter, I'm sorry, the, the, the prophets cover over a quarter of the Bible, maybe closer to a third of the Bible. So I hope you brought snacks today. Uh, we're going to be here a while. In fact, we talked about taking communion halfway through, then I'll finish the sermon, that way you've got a snack halfway through, but they said that would be sacrilegious, so we decided not to do that. But what we're going to do is look at the prophets. Now, just so you kind of know what the prophets are, it's like the last half of your Old Testament. It's 17 books of the Old Testament. 
And they're split into two groups, what we call five major prophets. That would be Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and, and Daniel, and then 12 minor prophets. Now, there's no like more importance in being a major prophet to being a minor prophet. The reason they're called major and minor is because the major ones are long and the minor ones are short. That's about it. Like the minor ones are, you know, so a couple of them are just a chapter long. The book of Isaiah, for example, 66 chapters, one of the longest chapters in the Bible. Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible. So, I mean, it's like you've got the, these ideas of, of just long versus short. And so that's the difference in those. And as we look at these prophets, I want you to understand something. If you're somebody who made a commitment to read through the Bible, maybe you started that at the first of this year. And you do the logical thing if you start in Genesis and you just start reading through page by page all the way through to Revelation. If you're not real well versed in the Bible, like, like you don't spend a lot of time there, you're just kind of reading through it because you think that it's good to learn, you can get to the prophets and they can be a little confusing. And so to understand the prophets better, it helps to understand the first 22 books of the Old Testament, but in particular, it helps to understand about three books. It really helps the more you learn and study First and Second Kings and Second Chronicles, because that's the story of Israel that the prophets are plugged into. See, the, plot, the prophets, it's not just like a continuous narrative from those books into the prophets. The prophets actually take place during that. If you've got a chronological Bible, you read the prophets as you're reading those other books. Like they plug back into the story of what's taking place. And, and you look at those three books. Really, it's two and a half because it's like the last half of, of First Kings through Second Kings. Those cover about a 350-year time frame. Like that was kind of the era of the prophets up until about 400 B.C. And, and so just to kind of give you a quick little, here's what we're talking about today, idea. Just so that if you haven't been here for the first few weeks of this series, or if you're not that familiar, you, you know where we're at. Here's basically the story of the Bible up to this point. Okay, in, in the beginning, we talked about a few weeks ago, Genesis 1, God creates the world. Okay, Genesis 2, he, he creates man and woman, and, and they go to work. Genesis 3 is the sin. Like, that's where we fall. And that's where everything starts to fall apart. And in the next few chapters, up through chapter 11, that's actually like 4,000 years of history crammed into those like eight chapters, nine chapters. And that's where we read about like the great flood and Noah with his ark. It's where we read about the, you know, the Tower of Babel and God confusing the languages of the people because they you know, weren't worshiping quite right. But then in Genesis 12, we read about a man named Abram. Brad talked about him a bit a few weeks ago. And Abram was called, he's also called Abraham, called out of that land to go to a new land because God wanted to form a new nation through him. And God ultimately wanted to bless the whole world through him by ultimately giving a Messiah, a Savior, which would eventually be Jesus. But you've got Abraham, and then you've got his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob, and then his son Joseph. And we refer to those four as the patriarchs. And their story eventually leads them to Egypt because there's a famine in the land. And so they get to Egypt, and Joseph raises up in power. Even though he's a Hebrew in Egypt, he raises up to like the number two person in the country. And he brings the Hebrews with them because there's drought and famine in their land, and they come to Egypt, and, and, and they're saved through what, what Joseph did. And Joseph and the Pharaoh were, were close, but over the course of time, they both pass away, and 
there's a new Pharaoh, and Brad kind of alluded to this last week. At some point, the Hebrew people grew so big that they actually were a threat to the Egyptians, so they got put under slavery, and they were slaves to Egypt for centuries, like at least 400 years, probably beyond that, well beyond 400 years. You get into the book of Exodus, and a man named Moses, a Hebrew, escapes. He escapes the slavery, but God calls him back. He's like, no, you're not going to go hide. You're actually going to go back, and you're going to take your people with you, and you're going to leave Egypt with my people. And so he does, and that's the book of Exodus. And while they're on this journey headed towards the promised land, that's when God gives the law that we talked about last week, the Ten Commandments plus several hundred more, as Brad alluded to, over 600 laws in the law. But we read about that through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and all the way up. And, and sorry, this is a spoiler alert, but the Bible's old, so the statute of limitations is passed here, okay? Moses dies, okay? And he dies at the end of Deuteronomy. He doesn't get to go to the promised land. So God anoints his lieutenant, Joshua, to be the new leader. Joshua takes them into the promised land. And his book that you can read about this is called Joshua. I know it's creative. The Bible's very creative in the names of its books, okay? But Joshua takes them in there and they conquer the land. That's where we read about Jericho and the walls falling down. And, and the tribes of Israel, there's 12, they settle across the promised land. And then at the end of Joshua, Joshua dies. Again, spoiler alert. And then there's this period where there's not an anointed leader. And we read about this, that, that after there's not a leader, it's not very long until the people start to lose sight of God. Now, this is centuries after the patriarchs. I don't know how many generations after the patriarchs, but it tells us in the book of Judges, chapter 2, it says, after that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he'd done for, them, for Israel. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. And they serve the images of the idol Baal. Okay, you go forward through the book of Judges and you start to see a pattern develop. The people of Israel ignore or reject or revolt against God. And at some point, they fall under captivity of another nation. They're persecuted. And so in their desperation and persecution, they cry out to God. So God raises up a judge, which is why the book is called Judges. Okay, because there's multiple judges. And the judge helps to deliver them by the work of God. And, and so then they're, they're living for God again. And then things are going well. And suddenly they start to ignore or revolt against God. And they get overtaken by people. And they get put into desperation and slavery. And they cry out to God. And it's just rinse and repeat for 350 years. That's the book of Judges. And then you get into the book of 1 Samuel. And God sends a prophet. Guess what his name is? Samuel. We're so creative with these. I love it. He sends a prophet named Samuel. And Samuel uh, comes to the people, but the people say, we don't want these judges anymore. We don't want this prophet. We want a king. And God's like, no, you don't need a king. You've got me. He's like, no, 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 we want a king. So we kind of talked about this a few weeks ago on the week about sin. If you beg God enough for something, eventually he's probably going to be like, fine, take it and go see how bad of an idea this is. So he gives him a king. And it's this man named Saul, and Saul becomes king, and he's the king for 40 years, but not too far into Saul's reign. Saul rejects God, so God rejects Saul, and already starts to raise up the next king, which is a man named David. And we read about David in 2 Samuel, and, and, and David reigns for 40 years, and then he dies. And then we read about his son Solomon, who becomes king, and he reigns for 40 years. It was very 
you know, consistent there for a while, 40 years, 40 years, 40 years. And we read about his story through the first 11 chapters of 1 Kings. And then we get into 1 Kings 12. Solomon's died, and Solomon didn't follow God as closely as his father David did. He did, but, you know, he was kind of more like one of those lukewarm, church-going Christian types. And so as a result, his son really didn't have anything to do with God. And after Solomon dies, we see something happen. We see his son Rehoboam be declared the king, but several of the tribes of Israel reject him, and they want this man named Jeroboam, no relation, want this man named Jeroboam to become the king. So they actually break off, and now we have two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And Israel almost immediately rejects all things God, and they start to worship idols. Judah stays faithful, like, you know, for a few months, and then they start to reject God, and worship idols. And that brings us to why we have the prophets. Because then this pattern rinses and repeats all the way through the book of Nehemiah for about 500 years. And so God sends prophets to these nations, to these kingdoms, to speak for him. Now, just so you kind of know, the books of prophecy that make up the bulk of our Old Testament that we're kind of talking about today, those are not the only prophets in the Bible. In fact, a lot of scholars will call Moses a prophet. We already mentioned Samuel. He was a prophet before this. There was a man named Nathan. He was a prophet for David. The prophets played a very key role in the establishment and early growth of Israel. They came to to, to speak on God's behalf to leaders, to kings, to would-be kings, to, to judges, to help them out. They played a critical role in the establishment and, again, the story of Israel. And so what I want to do today, because, again, kind of like I said with, there's entire Bible college programs, majors, you know, on this. We can't cover everything about the prophets just in, in a sermon. I mean, there, my goodness, you can major in the prophets in Bible college and spend four years studying them. Uh, there's classes at, at, at the Bible college I went to, a class on, like, Isaiah, there's a class on messianic prophecy where you just learn about the individual prophecies that relate to Jesus. Like, there's whole, you know, semester-long classes, you know. I've got you guys for 20 minutes. So <laughs> we're going to instead just overview this. And I want you to kind of understand what we're going to do with this. We're just going to look at who these prophets are. So they play such a key role. We're going to look at who they are and what they did. So who are they? Well, it's, it's pretty clear. The prophets are God's spokesmen. They came to speak on his behalf. That's why when you read the books of prophecy, it's almost always, even though it's their writing, it's in the first person from God. There's a lot of I said, and it's, it's God talking through them. And to kind of illustrate this a little bit, the prophet Amos, he writes these words from God, Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. Like, like he says, that was his goal. And so his plan for the prophets is very simple. It's to remind the people of God who they are. And it's to remind them about the commitment they made to God and to the root of the covenants that they made with God as well, too. They announce blessings to people. They announce curses to people on God's behalf. It's not them blessing people or them cursing people. Only God can do those things, but they announce the blessings and curses on behalf of God. They're reminding the people who they were created to be. People who lived with, walked with, talked with, and actually interacted with God. Not just through prayer like we do, okay, but they actually interacted with him like we would one another. That's what we read about 
back in the very beginning. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. It's a glimpse of what we'll do one day in heaven. And they're reminding the people that that's what we were created for. We were created to worship and serve God. But we know somewhere along the line, very early in the story, in fact, page three of my Bible, as I said a few weeks ago, we replaced God with ourselves. That was the problem, and the prophets were called to remind the people that's not the way it was intended to be. In fact, I'd say this, the primary role of the prophets is to call God's people back to this divine reality that we belong to God and not the other way around. You've probably heard me say this already. You'll hear me say this quite often, a paraphrase from a quote by by Dallas Willard, that God created mankind in his own image, and we were so kind that we returned the favor. Like, like that's what we've done, right? We personalized God because a personalized God is much easier for me to follow. A God that looks like me and sounds like me and thinks like me and likes the same stuff that I like and is passionate and doesn't like the things I don't like. That's a very easy God for me to follow, and that's a very different God than you might have. So we have to remember that we belong to God and not the other way around. And the heart of the prophets boils down to a deep desire for and concern that Israel would reflect God's character by walking in his ways, by keeping the promises that they made to God and the covenants with him. Now, here's what you need to understand, too. The prophets, like any book of the Bible, we started our our small group this past week. It's on how we got the Bible. I, I told our group this, and I'll repeat throughout the class, is that the Bible is God's word. I believe that. But the Bible, even though it was spoken by God, was written by human hands. And those human authors are going to put their own voice and their own personality onto it. Same thing as if I preach a sermon and Brad came up with the exact same sermon the next week. You're going to actually get two different takes on it. Why? Because we're two different people. He has his personality. I have mine. He has his voice. I have mine. We're going to sound different. We might say by and large the same things, but we're going to say them in different ways. And so the prophets understand they wrote to different audiences They had different contexts. Again, those two and a half chapters cover 350 years. Different kings, different nations have overtaken Israel. Different groups are in charge. So they're writing for a slightly different direct purpose, but at the root of what they all wrote, almost to a T across the board, their message boils down to one simple theme and message, is to repent. That's why the prophets came. Again, to remind the people that they belong to God and not the other way around. Repentance, that's where we're going to camp out for a little bit. It's a requirement to walk with God. Again, go back to the last few weeks. We've got a sin problem, but God chose us anyway, and then he gave us the law to walk by. But he calls us to repentance. He calls us to, to repent. And often I think, especially in our day and time with the church, Especially with with the Christian church, a lot of times we can start to fixate and and even argue at times on various aspects of salvation. Like like we start talking about what's the most important thing at times. And some people are like, well, it's it's all about asking for forgiveness of sin and, and making sure that you lead somebody to the sinner's prayer, which, by the way, isn't even in the Bible. You're not going to find the sinner's prayer in the Bible. It doesn't mean it's a bad thing. It's just not straight out of the Bible. I want you to know that. You're leading somebody to say the words that they need to say to ask God for forgiveness. Because after all, the Bible is very clear. If you ask God for forgiveness, he'll, he, he will. He'll forgive you of your sins. 
Or some people will talk about baptism. No, it's about baptism and it's about you're not saved until you go under the water or, or no, you are saved before you go under the water or, well, it's not the water it's, it's, or, or it is the water and, and we argue about that. They're like, just get baptized, <laughs> you know? doesn't matter where it falls in there, just get baptized. Or, or we talk about submission and surrender and about how those are important and difficult topics because we're called the persecution. And we, we, well, you should be. If you're not suffering in any way, you're, you're really having it too easy. And we lose sight of the fact that repentance is the first command we're given as Christians. I mean, you go back to the first day of the church in the book of Acts where Peter and the apostles have been there and the Holy Spirit has shown up. And, and, and then Peter preaches this sermon, the first sermon in the history of the Christian church. Preaches this sermon. You can read it in Acts chapter 2. And then thousands of people come to Christ, come to, 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 to ask for forgiveness that day and to be baptized. And somebody in, in verse 37 of Acts 2 asks Peter, what do I have to do to get all this? And look at his response. Repent of your sins and turn to God and then be baptized. Repent. And then be baptized. This is 800 years after the prophets. But the message is still the same. The message hasn't changed. Repent, be baptized. What's repentance? I think it's like this. To repent is to feel sincere remorse for your sin. And then to turn away from it and to turn to God instead. To understand not only what you've done, but why what you've done is wrong why it's not pleasing to God, and then to chase after God instead. I think that's why that was the first thing Peter mentioned on that day of Pentecost. See, often we don't really talk about repentance. We just kind of, I think, assume that people will. That you're a Christian now, so you just naturally will repent. I don't think it's that simple. It's a conscious decision you have to understand you're making. Does it mean as a Christian that you're not going to sin? Of course not. We still do. But what it means is that's not my motivation anymore. My, my drive in life, my, my motivation in life, it's not what the world offers me. Does that mean I just have to be square and can't enjoy anything in the world? No. We're going to watch the Super Bowl this afternoon. We're going to have fun watching it. We're going to have some neighbors over. We're going to have the smoker going all afternoon. It's going to be a good day. Okay? But what it means is that's not my fuel and motivation to fill my life and to fill my heart. My fuel, my motivation is God. I had an old pastor that said that somebody asked him, well, you're a Christian. I guess that means you never sin. He goes, no, it just means I don't want to. I don't try to, but I still do. I still do, and it's hard to not. And I think that we have to remember this simple fact. A key aspect, when you come to Christ, a key aspect of repentance, it all starts with humility. Again, you're remembering that you belong to God and not the other way around. In, in 2 Chronicles, God speaks to King Solomon in a verse that's very famous, that we often take so far out of context, but very famous verse. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my, my, my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and restore their land. Now, i got to be honest, sometimes this verse makes me cringe because we have Americanized this verse ad nauseum. I'll see this on, a, on an American flag in somebody's, in somebody's house, and I'm not trying to sound unpatriotic, but this verse was not written to our country. 
This verse was written to us. And I think that we have to pay such close attention to what God is telling Solomon. Because as Solomon is king, Solomon is kind of wishy-washy in following God. The people are starting to get less interested. These are God's people, and it was just a few years earlier that his father David was leading them and trying to keep pointing them to God. And now they're starting to run. And what God is saying here, what God is telling them here, is that he is right there with them, but they have to turn and make a move. I mean, just look at what he tells us here. Humble yourself. Pray. Seek my face. Turn from your wicked ways. Then he says, I'll hear from heaven, and I'll forgive your sin. The more I study the Bible, the more I dive into the Bible, the more I am convinced there is a reason that wording is ordered in such a way that it is ordered. I think that that is exactly what God wanted us to know through the author of this book. So what do we need to do if you're, if you're trying to figure out how to get to God? You humble yourself, you pray, you seek him, and then you turn. I think that has to be done in that order. I don't think that you can truly repent and turn away from sin without humbling yourself. I think it's impossible. You have to do that. Again, go back to the idea we talked about a few weeks ago with sin, with the fall. I, I said this, and I had some people ask me later, I, I said that God can't be where sin is. And some people said, well, can you clarify that? And, and I look at it like this, God's everywhere. Is, is there sin where I'm at? Yeah, probably, <laughs> most of the time. doesn't mean God's not there. But it means that when I'm sinning, I'm running from him. He's not leaving me. I'm running from him. Okay, it's like if one of my kids wanders off and gets lost. I didn't ditch them. They wandered off and got lost. And guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to try to find them. In fact, Jennifer was uh, in, in Oklahoma the last few days at, at her mom's house. They don't have a fence up. And the girls were supposed to be watching Titus. You know where the story's going. My first Sunday here, I gave you a Titus ran away from home story. Here's another one. Supposed to be watching Titus in the front yard. And I don't know how long it had been. My mother-in-law's neighbor calls her, um, this little boy just walked in our house, does he belong to you guys? Yeah, probably. <laughs> I don't know how many other little boys just roam into somebody's house, you know. Like, well, at least he went to Colleen, she's got a nice pool in the backyard. I know it's February, but she's got a nice pool in the backyard, he was probably going to go have a good time. No, see, here's what we need to understand when it comes to God, is that God chases us. God comes after us. He pursues us even though we run. But we have to stop and turn around to get a hold of him. He's not going to grab us and keep us from running. He's going to keep chasing us. But we have to stop. And that's where you humble yourself. And you, you seek and you turn around. And, and there he is. That's why God speaks to the prophet Zechariah, chapter 1, where he says, tell the people this, this is what the Lord Almighty says, return to me and I will return to you. And folks, this is a promise that still stands today. You cannot outrun God. You can try, but you can't do it. You're not going to do it. Okay, he's going to be pursuing you the whole time. And when you return to him, He's going to return to you. I, I kind of think of it like this. 
It's like if you trip and fall, okay, and you're laying there on the ground, and, and you're not, you know, just completely and totally lifeless. I could scoop you up and try to carry you to safety, or I could reach my hand down to try and help you up. But if I reach my hand down, that's not going to do you any good unless you grab a hold of mine. I think that's what God wants us to do. I think God wants us to reach out and grab his hand that's already extended for us so that he can pick us up. That's what repentance looks like. It's humbling ourselves and it's turning back to him. But understand too, repentance comes from God's love. It comes out of his love. I think these words from Zechariah right here, these words that God speaks through Zechariah, are more than just a promise. I think they're the reassurance that the prophets are are telling us about God's deep and true love that he has for us. I think they're reassurance of that. I think the message of the prophets is rooted in this very truth. If it wasn't for the incredible love that God has for us, he wouldn't even give us the chance to repent. He'd just be like, well, you had your shot and you blew it. And he'd just rush us away and he'd probably start fresh. I mean, that's what we do. That's what our culture does. And you burn me, I'm just going to push you to the side and start over. Because, you know, you had your shot. No, God offers us the chance to repent and the chance to come back to him rather than leaving us stuck in our sin. Folks, that's grace. That's what grace looks like. That's what the love of God looks like. It's unmerited and undeserved favor. We get what we don't deserve, and we don't get what we actually do deserve, which is death and condemnation. That's the love of God. And sometimes that message of repentance is clothed in love in the prophets, specifically the prophet Hosea. There we read a a true love story. God tells the prophet Hosea in the very beginning of his book, go marry the prostitute. Go marry the adulterous woman. And what he's doing is he's showing an illustration, an example of what he's done. He says, because I called Israel. Israel is that adulterous woman. I called the church. Let's put it in modern day context. I call the church. The church is the adulterous woman. We're the unfaithful bride to God. And yet... We read through Hosea, we read through that book, and we see through God that time and time again, despite the fact that time and time again we are unfaithful to him, and time and time again we are adulterous to him, and time and time again we have prostituted ourselves out to the world, time and time again he has extended his love to us, and he has forgiven us despite what we have done to him. Hosea chapter 2, he tells Tells him, I will make you my wife forever, showing your righteousness and justice, unfailing love and compassion. I will be faithful to you and make you mine, and you'll finally know me as Lord. I mean, would he tell us that if his love for us was not just incredible? That's why we're called the bride of Christ as the church. Because he has been more faithful to us than we could ever hope to be back to him. There's a term for that. It's called unconditional love. It's the idea that that, that sometimes I think we, we, we see this phrase and we think, well, there's nothing I can do to lose God's love. That's true, but it's twofold. There's also nothing we have to do to earn God's love or deserve God's love because we can't do either. And he offers it to us anyway, and there's nothing we can do to lose it either. His love for us is simply there. 
And what I think this all means, this call to repentance, this reminder that he loves us, I think it boils down to to two things. I think it reminds us of two things. First, it reminds us that God hasn't abandoned us. That he's been there with us. And that he'll never abandon us. I think that God still today tells us the same promise he told Joshua back in the very beginning of the book of Joshua when he tells him, I will never leave you or forsake you. Now Joshua, again, he's the one who replaced Moses and this is probably like day one of his job. And he's got to be overwhelmed because the people were getting impatient with Moses and Moses was qualified to be their leader. Joshua, like, he's like, okay, I guess it's my turn now. And we read about Joshua being this great, you know, conquering kind of leader, but I think Joshua struggled with confidence. I think that because several times we read God telling Joshua, be strong and courageous. Like he has to remind him about this. And it starts with that promise, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Folks, that applies to us too. God has not left us. If it feels like he has, I'm just going to be very honest with you. It's because we've left him. It's because we've run from him. And I know sometimes we don't want to hear that. When something bad is happening, we may cry out, God, where are you? And it's hard for us to be honest with ourselves in that moment. Trust me, I've been there. I've been there many times, some not that long ago. Screaming out at God, where are you? And I have to look in my own heart. And sometimes I have to wait until after the fact. (laughs) Be honest with myself. God's been right there. The problem is I've been looking over here instead of looking over here. I haven't been looking where he's at. I'm trying to find him on my own. I'm not stopping to humble myself and pray first. I'm getting things out of order. He's never abandoned us and he never will. I think the second thing it reminds us of is this. God is still encouraging us to become like Jesus. He's encouraging us. He's pulling us towards God or towards Christ. And I think at times that can feel hard because sometimes again we feel like he's abandoned us. Sometimes we feel like the weight of the world is just crushing us. Anybody been there? Some of you were there right now. And you just want to cry out, man, this is this is just awful. But remember the promise that God spoke through Isaiah, the prophet, when he says, "Don't be afraid, for I am with you." Don't be discouraged, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. That's a reminder and a promise that no matter what you feel, no matter what's going on, that God is there with you and he's holding you up. He's pushing you forward. He's encouraging you. And we see this all the way through the New Testament. Acts 15, it says, Then Judas and Silas, both being prophets, spoke at length to the believers, encouraging and strengthening their faith. I mean, my goodness, how often do we need that? How often do we need encouragement and strengthening in our faith? As a church, we exist, yes, to bring people to Christ. That should always be the top of our mission. But alongside that, we need to strengthen and encourage believers. Because all of us, I think, until we hit heaven, we're capable of having our faith rattled. But the stronger it can go, the harder it is to rattle. The deeper our roots can go, the more mature we get in our faith, the harder it is to be shaken. That's what they wanted to do, is encourage people in that that role. Here's why I think that's so important. 
God's love for us leads us to become more like Christ. And folks, that's our goal as Christians. Like, like we don't repent and get baptized just to get a get out of hell free card, just to get the fast pass to heaven. No, our goal is to become like Jesus. That's what Christian means, little, little Christ, like Christ. That's our goal is to become more like him. What did Jesus do? Well, he tells us multiple times. He came to bring life and bring it to the full to his world. He came to serve others. He came to seek and save the lost. That's why Christ came, to make a difference in his world for God, to make a difference in his kingdom for God. In fact, he tells us that in Luke chapter 5. Luke 5, when, when, when he calls his disciples and he calls Matthew the dirty, rotten, sinning tax collector, and then he goes to Matthew's Super Bowl party because it's already too late to cancel, and it's a kegger, by the way. And he goes anyway because he knows he needs to reach these people. And the Pharisees, who, by the way, we can easily become those who worship the law, <laughs> they didn't like it. What are you doing hanging out here? with these miserable, rotten, no-good sinners. And what's Jesus tell them? Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. And I love how the New Living words this. I've not come to call those who think they are righteous. I've come to call those who know they are sinners and need to repent. Folks, that should be all of us. None of us should ever think that we're righteous. We need to think and understand that we're just sinners that are saved by grace. And we don't have to carry that label anymore because his repentance came and gave us, gave us, we got to clear that off. We got to erase that. And that's what Jesus did. Brad said this last week. He came to fulfill the law and to fulfill the prophets. He came to put what they said into motion, into action. And when he did that, meant all the stuff that we've done, when we turn to him, when we repent and go to him, that's all erased because we're forgiven. We're cleansed by his very blood that he shed on the cross. And folks, that happens because we have a God who loves us in spite of us, who has pursued us in spite of us. We have a God who has chased after us no matter how far or fast or hard we have run. And he's always going to be there for us no matter how many times you run. Just like we read in Hosea. No matter how many times we run, he's always going to be there when we run back. That's why he says to the prophet Joel, here's what the Lord says, turn to me now while there is time. Meaning while you've got breath in your lungs, turn to me. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting and weeping and mourning. Don't tear your clothing and your grief. Tear your heart instead. In other words, get into what you really are, are dealing with. And he says, return to the Lord your God, for he's merciful and compassionate. He's slow to get angry, and he's filled with unfailing love. Folks, his love for us is without condition. I, I want you to understand that it is without condition. There is nothing that you can do to earn it or lose it. But he's also called us to live a holy and pure life. It's not an either or. Some people want to put it on an either or, all grace or all truth. He loves us regardless. It doesn't matter what we do or no, there's severe consequences and, and you can forget all that talk. It's not an either or. He loves us 
but he calls us. It's a both and. I want you to hear me. Wherever you're at today, maybe you're here for the first time, maybe you're hearing the story of Jesus for the first time. Wherever you're at, whatever mess you're in, I want you to understand something. God loves you just the way that you are. But he loves you too much to leave you that way. I used to tell my soccer players when I coached, if I'm getting on you, if I'm pushing you, it's because I know you can become a better player than you're showing me. God hasn't given up on you. And yes, he loves you. But yes, he loves you too much to leave you that way. And as we get ready to wrap this up, we're going to close this a little differently today. Because we're going to sing a declaration. We're going to sing a prayer. We sang it earlier in the service. We're going to sing it again here in just a moment. And we're not going to do this like formal altar call kind of thing. I told the, the 8 o'clock uh, service that uh, when I was a kid, my, my mom was like the only person on stage play. She played piano. And our pastor, I loved him to death, still love him to death. But he would always look right at her and go, would the musicians please come? And it was like just her, you know, it was like singular. Like you could have said, hey, Kathleen, get up here, you know, and she would have come. But, but then he would proceed to give an altar call, which we always joked was like another 15-minute post-sermon sermon. I'm not going to do that. But what I want you to do, if you're here today, and, and you can be very honest with yourself, I don't care if you're honest with me, be honest with yourself and you can say, I need that. I need to turn to God. I haven't done that. Or maybe I did that and, and I ran away again. I need to do it again. Can I just encourage you something? As we sing this song, we'll come to the altar. Would you just make a commitment? Either find me out in the, in the foyer afterwards or find Brad or find one of our other pastors or one of our elders. Or would you like call me or email me this week? Because I really want to talk with you. I want to have that conversation with you. And it's not because I, I want to know any of the stuff that you've done. I just want you to understand the love of God the way I feel it and understand it. Okay? They're going to come and sing this song. And I, I just invite you as we do to just stand and sing this, this declaration with us as we, we cry out to our God. And we'll lead into communion after that moment. But as we get ready to come to his altar, I just want to challenge you to be in a mind of, of, of humility and prayer and seeking. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful. We're so grateful that you love us so much that you send your son to die on the cross for us so that we can come to you to be forgiven of all that we've done. And God, as we come to this moment, Lord, I just pray that we would be reminded of that. That we would know that you will never leave us or forsake us. That you will encourage us and guide us and lead us. And God, I pray as anybody's facing these possible decisions today, facing the same challenge today, God, you would speak to their hearts and you would remind them of the love that you have for them. That you're right there with them. God, because we belong to you.